Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of March 11th, 2019. On the show today, demolition comes to Epcot's future world. And Jim continues our chronological Disneyland story with what happened the last time Disneyland tried to redo Tomorrowland in 1990. And speaking of Jim... Let's bring in the man who points out that none of us really knows how long we're going to live, so the best time for a midlife crisis is now. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? So, does 60 count as midlife? I mean, I... I it, that does for me, Jim. Okay. Because <laughs> that's the thing. Tomorrow, I actually turn 60. That's right. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So, if that's midlife, I have to live to be 120? So far, so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Woody Allen line. I plan to live forever. What? <laughs> so long, so far, no, it's uh, Stephen Wright. Okay. I plan to live forever. So far, so good. I've been thinking a lot about the Chevalier song lately from Gigi. I'm glad that I'm not young anymore. But that's largely because I have this job where yeah. my whole point is to remember pointless crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was talking to Laurel the other day. We were going down the stairs mm. to a subway in New York. And I noticed that... This one kid like ran past us, like ran down the stairs, basically flinging himself mm -hmm. down the stairs. And I thought to myself, I wonder if my legs move that fast anymore. <laughs> Probably not. And Laurel pointed out that even if they did, you shouldn't. Right? Yeah. I guess, right. Especially in the subway, Len. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the subway. Yeah. Because you, you, if you're not wearing gloves, you don't really want to hold the railing. You're, so you're kind of like moving very carefully. The other, the other question I have is how old do you have to be before you can't take steps? Like you can't run upstairs two at a time. Like so far again, so far so good for me. These are the things I think about, Jim. These are the things I think about. I think all of us can grade in a curve. If, for example, if Godzilla rises up out of the harbor, I think all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly we all have incentive. <laughs> you know, it's like... Exactly. So if we all have varying, varying levels of motivation throughout the day, but in times of extreme crises, there we go. Two we're all Jesse line. Owens, right? <laughs> we're all Carl Lewis, Usain Bolt. <laughs> all right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at disneydish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, R. Jamerson, Rick G, and Sean R. And the longtime subscribers, our promise to Nicholas, J, and Scott S. All right, speaking of listeners, let's do some listener questions. Here's one from Mitchell W. Uh, testing is up and running on the Skyliner at the end of February. However, they're still saying the Skyliner will be open in the fall of 2019, which seems like a very long time away. About Disney's Riviera Resort, though, and how that will affect the opening of the Skylander. Will there be an issue with the Skylander opening before the Riviera? Is there any issue with the Skylander opening and taking guests over a active construction site if this was to open before the Riviera opens in December? Jim, what do you think? Is there uh, Are they going to run the Skylander past the Riviera, even if it's not open? The orientation to the station, isn't it mostly facing toward... The old Caribbean units, that sort of thing, or not sure. Hmm. I have to admit, uh, you know, again, thanks to our friend Bio Reconstruct, that he's done an awful lot of flying over, and it's like when you see, for example, the path that the Skyliner passes over on its way from, say, Disney Hollywood Studios over to the Art of Animation and Pop Century Station. The stuff it's passing over right now is kind of a construction site and not yeah. exactly attractive. I mean, I think we're going to have to kind of grade on a curve here. It is a transportation system. It's not a ride. 
how many of the folks who work our side of the street, Len, are deliberately going to ride the Skyliner because it's going over a construction site? Oh, yeah. Most of us would. Uh, you know, looking at the map, it looks like the Skyliner is going to go right over the west side of Caribbean Beach, but stop a little bit before the uh, the major construction part of the Riviera. Mm-hmm. So I think we're safe there. I think that's a, I think yeah. we're safe. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's a good point, Jim. All right, Jim, speaking of the Skyliner, lots of videos have been posted in the last few weeks showing the Skyliner lines running at either near capacity or full capacity with a whole bunch of gondolas on the line running back and forth between the parks and the resorts. And one day earlier this week, on a very windy day, you could see how the empty gondolas were being moved by the wind. Did you see this? I've heard it alluded to. I understand that Irwin Allen has already negotiated the rights to the disaster film. (laughs) Skyliner. There we go. So the interesting thing is we got a couple of emails from people who were uh, who asked, should we be concerned by this? Mm-hmm. Like, is this thing going to sway this much in the wind, mm-hmm. uh, especially during, you know, a Florida, you know, thunderstorm? I don't think it is because the gondolas were empty mm-hmm. when the video was shot. So the weight of the people who will be in the gondolas will dampen the effect of the wind on those gondolas. I am not a mechanical engineer, mm-hmm. but I think the people will act as something called a mass damper kind of thing that helps tall buildings not sway too much in high winds. We will see. I am very excited to see how this all, this all works, by the way. Okay. And was making some calls on the heels of this news, and they aren't ready to talk about how fast the wind needs to be blowing for them to shut down operations of the Skylander right now. I think right. there's a theoretical, but the concern is that, you know, what if the wind comes up and we have... I guess in the gondolas, There yeah. we go. Because it's, uh, so end-to-end, it's 15 minutes maximum from point to point. So starting at Art of Animation of Pop Century, going all the way to Epcot, my understanding is that entire journey can be done in 15 minutes, which means that any individual segment Mm -hmm. is about five minutes long maximum. So all they would need, Disney would need, would be about five minutes, you know, maybe six or seven, Mm -hmm. just to be play safe, to be able to stop boarding people, new people onto the gondolas and then get everyone off. One little side note here that I I thought was kind of intriguing was that when I asked about this, when, you know, I said, okay, so you have a windstorm, what happens? And it's like, well, you know, what we do is we alert our our bus folks and wherever folks were getting off. And then it's like, well, I'm staying at the Pop Century. I'm setting art animation. And it's like, for example, at the studio's end, well, it's like, okay, so you walk out there and grab a bus and go. Yeah, but if you're at Caribbean Beach and you're going to Pop Century. There we go. Yeah. That's one of those situations where it's like, we have a plan. We just have to implement it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens the first time this actually occurs. Yeah, because we'll have to dispatch a bus. The bus will go through traffic. It'll have to pick up people. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to have to do some service recovery there, but hopefully it won't happen uh, very often. I'm, I'm glad they've already thought of the contingency plan, too, so that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, uh, remember our show about a couple of weeks ago about Disney's internal carbon tax fund, where each line of business gets charged an internal tax according to their net greenhouse gas emissions? Yep. Yes, remember that? Mm-hmm. One of our most popular shows in, uh, in a while. Yeah. Well, you can't miss with gas, Len. What can I tell you? <laughs> and we were wondering why Disney wasn't uh, telling uh, consumers that, hey, we've got this internal policy. It's built around incentives and costs that try to get you to reduce your carbon footprint while, reducing, uh, while visiting Walt Disney World. And we were wondering why, why they weren't doing it. So alert reader Bill K wrote in with a link to a survey by the Associated Press and the University of Chicago that asked Americans how much they were willing to spend to, to combat climate change. Most Americans, 
would pay a dollar a month, Jim, to combat climate change. And this fits in with another survey by NBC News that indicated most Americans would not pay $10 a month to fight climate change. So uh, as Bill Kaye inferred, that seems to be what Disney's up against when being open about their uh, carbon efforts. Totally makes sense to me. Absolutely. Good point. Good point. All right, Jim, uh, let's do the news. Don't forget the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, the trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, remember that uh, Disney announced a few weeks ago that major changes would be coming to Epcot's Future World? Yes? They did. They did. So a new construction permit was filed this week for Epcot. And it seems to make some of those plans clearer. Thanks to our friends over at WDWMagic.com for posting this. It looks like the construction permit includes demolition for Club Cool, Interventions West, that's the side closest to the land, the Epcot character spot, and the electric umbrella, also Starbucks. Yeah. Plus the work we uh, knew about to relocate the Leave It Legacy tiles. I'm surprised about the Starbucks, no? When you think about the amount of money that Disney makes off of guests going into that Starbucks, that gives you some idea of the dedication to this plan. Now, when Chapek was on stage at the D23 Expo back in 2017, and they showed this piece of concept art that basically showed the expanse from Spaceship Earth to World Showcase Lagoon, where it mm-hmm. was like, I don't remember there being a forest. <laughs> Rapunzel. There we go. Rapunzel. Hansel. Hansel. We've talked in the past about the whole notion of Epcot has a monkey on its back. It's a uh, flower and garden. It's food and wine. It's, you know, holidays around the world. And now, just this, this past year, we, we saw the Festival of the Arts go from a weekend only to a seven-day-a-week thing. And I got to tell you, Len... They've flipped the script. They're no longer viewing the festivals as the monkey on Epcot's back, the thing that they do to artificially bump up attendance. Boost attendance, yeah. This is Epcot going forward. And for the first time, when this work is done, the festival portion of all of these events, for the first time, will really start to move down into Future World. Really? Oh, so no one's said this yet, but you think that the construction in Epcot is going to enable them to move the festival kiosks park-wide instead of just being a World Circus? Just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the Play Pavilion, which again is deliberately set up so it can be swapping out shows and attractions and that sort of thing. It says so much about what the real plan here is. What's the one chunk that survived? Mouse Gear. Yeah. Virtually everything else in the heart of the park goes away. They're trying to get a lot of this work done out ahead of the 50th. Mm-hmm. But we should anticipate that on the other side of 2021, 2022, work will continue. This is more about positioning Epcot as a theme park that celebrates the human spirit. Human capacity for emotion and spending money. Oh, go well, there you go. <laughs> The very thing that they're dealing with with Disneyland's Tomorrowland and uh, Epcot's Future World, it's these giant expanses of concrete. And that's really not a place where a lot of us want to spend the future. No. So, you know, this is more about, you know, creating this green space that's very pleasant to hang out with. And now we've got these permanent open kitchen concepts and that sort of thing. That's really what we're about to see 
be created around Future World, this pleasant green space where there'll be more opportunities for performances. But at the same time, when it comes to dining, it's about what's mm-hmm. fun about dining now. When Odyssey reopened this, you know, late this past December, it came back as flex space. Yeah, it was a food flex space, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you're going to see what they're going to do with the heart of Future World is create this whole environment that when you arrive, it's not a question of, well, I have to walk for another thousand feet before I get to food and wine, before I get to flower and garden. It's like, no, you come under Spaceship Earth and wow, the party starts here. Oh, interesting. All right. So let's be clear on this. Right now, there are some food kiosks for flower and garden and food and wine just south of the Future World Plaza buildings, Mm -hmm. like right, right past sort of the Epcot character spot in Club Cool. They, there's that sort of green space yep. on either side mm-hmm. um, where they've got I mean, Occasionally, you've seen something over by Test Track, mm-hmm. but basically that's the parallel at which they start. You're saying that that they're going to push farther north up towards Spaceship Earth, Oh, yes. which is essentially the front of the park. Yeah. I mean, there is such a weird disconnect now. You enter the park, you come through the touch point, for your magic band. And sure, here's the planter in front of you that announces it's food and wine, it's flower and garden, it's a festival of the arts. And then there's this, you walk under Spaceship Earth and you chug and you chug and you chug and you chug. And you finally get to World Showcase Lagoon and the party, you know, it's like, oh, here's here's the event M4. And the notion is how many opportunities are we missing by the fact that there is really no connective tissue here? No, you're right. Okay, so I just measured this on, on Google Earth. It's almost 2,000 feet. Mm-hmm. From the park entrance to Mexico, mm-hmm. where ostensibly most of food and wine begins. Again, there are some kiosks up in Future World, but I think we will all agree that the heart of food and wine begins in World Showcase. Oh, okay, so that's that will cut a considerable amount off of that. That'll probably cut two thirds of that distance off. So now you're looking at like a few hundred feet mm-hmm. to enter. To enter, huh? How many times can you open your wallet in two thousand feet at a Disney theme park? I would. I think I would just tape money to my chest so I could peel it off easier. Because I think the constant rubbing of my hand mm-hmm. against my wallet in my pocket would uh, would cause some chafing. I'm just going to tape the money to my chest and peel it off as I need it. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the visual. <laughs> if you again, if you circle back on the, on the concept art, this, this is a green space. This is you take the World Showcase fountain. And you elongate it through this part of the park. So it travels. It becomes a show element. I mean, there's there's so many aspects huh. of this that Chapek believes that the educational aspect of Epcot has held the park back. It's okay to keep the educational component in place, but it's time to up the fun level. It's more distinctly Disney, more family-friendly, more character-based. So this is just the other part of this. This is taking the concrete heart out of Epcot and creating a green space, you know, someplace that you legitimately want to hang out. So, you know, especially at the end of the day, mm-hmm. as soon as the show and World Showcase is over, people, you know, turn and, you know, pivot and immediately leave the park. Maybe they make that right into mouse gear, but everything else, yeah. think about how Interventions basically shuts down, like, seven o'clock. There you go. Oh, good. So if we get, so we get more entertainment for a longer period of time, I'm, I'm all for it. I think the most surprising thing to me so far mm. is how soon the demolition is uh, is happening. They really would love to have a lot of this stuff up and running for the 50th, but 
the downside is Epcot becomes a war zone. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone's going to be at the studio, so no big deal. <laughs> okay. There's an upside. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Coming up after that break, how Disney's acquisition of Fox factors into the future of Disneyland's Tomorrowland. Here's a hint, kids. Now is not the first time the word edibles has been said with some concern in Southern California. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, you and I have been talking offline a little bit about how Disney's acquisition of Fox mm-hmm. is going to play out. And we've been talking about it for, for over a year, but now it looks like the all of the, the moving parts are starting to settle down and we're starting to see names being announced for who's going to run different parts of the Disney organization. How is that, how is that shaking out for Disney? What does it mean for the theme parks? For the longest time, Disney wasn't able to talk about specifics about what they were going to do when this acquisition was complete. But now, March 2019, it looks like this will be a done thing. And so, you know, we're now looking at, okay, so what comes into the parks? We need to be able to turn to the shareholders and say, yes, we are in fact recovering that $71.3 billion. And Some of that money is going to be recovered by eliminating redundant employees. And Fox has a promotions department. Disney has a promotions department. We don't necessarily need all of these people flogging the films. There is pressure to bring different Fox IPs into the park. I think we talked in a previous show about how they're seriously eyeballing the Ice Age characters. That's Blue Sky Studios, 20th Century Fox's animation arm. And we're looking for a way to broaden the appeal of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And Avatar used to be a Fox property. Now is it going to be a Disney property? So, yes, that, that supposedly they are kicking the tires of bringing Ice Age in. It's kind of interesting where they're talking about bringing Ice Age in. Where? Was it this time last year when there was all that talk of Indiana Jones possibly coming in to replace Dino Land USA and, and that sort of thing. Oh, Ice Age would make sense in, in uh, Dino Land USA. Yeah. But again, it's one of these things where it's kind of a DCA Paradise Pier becomes Pixar Pier kind of a thing. Oh, you think they convert the whole land over to be uh, Ice Age land? If they're looking for a quick and easy way to bring it into the park that they have the Sid character who's always been kind of a somewhat sleazy character. And so if there was somebody who'd be cashing in and setting up a, a sleazy roadside attraction, it would be Sid. And, you know, that would get, huh. get them into the park fairly quickly. The last time that Disney talked about bringing a Fox entity into the parks, it didn't work all that well. And, this would be Nostromo. This goes back when Michael Eisner announced the Disney decade in January of 1990. One of the things was this massive redo of Disneyland's Tomorrowland. And uh, January of 1989, the company had just opened Star Tours. And so Eisner took away from that. It's like, okay, you know, attractions based on sci-fi in Tomorrowland are a good thing. Space rides, kids. Yeah. Space rides. Yeah, okay. And they'd already acquired the rights to Ridley Scott's Alien 
we had the uh, great movie ride opened up, and we have that, you know, the scene from Alien with the world's worst Sigourney Reaver figure. Even Sigourney's mom. It's like, I have no idea who that oh, is. Oh, sweetie. You're, you're prettier than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. All right. So initially what they wanted to do for Disneyland was rather than the one short scene with, you know, you're on board the Nostromo. It's like, well, what if we put you in a ride vehicle through going through the entire Nostromo? And the notion was that you take that moment from the original Aliens film where mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver's Ripley character sets the auto-destruct, and you have five minutes to get to the shuttle bay to escape. Oh, jeez. Okay. You're making your way through the queue, and you eventually get to the pre-show, and it's like, and the last thing before you dispatch is like, you have five minutes. You know, boot, you know, and it's like, <laughs> have fun, kids. 459, and, 458. Yeah. And so uh, the, the other notion here was like, okay, so let's do something genuinely ambitious. Let's do something where the ride is randomized, so each time you go on this thing, you're passing down a different set of corridors, and, you know, that's, so there would have been multiple ride experiences, and all of it ending with you doing everything you can to get to the shuttle bay. Now, problem is, you're talking about a genuinely massive show building line. I mean, specs I was showing for this thing, it was at 80,000 square feet. Wow. That's basically the size of Men in Black Alien Attack. And then it just became a case of, okay, if we're going to do this, where does this go at Disneyland? And and what Mm -hmm. gets cut? Do we drop this on top of Autopia? And it's like, no. How many Southern Californians? That's the first time they got behind a wheel as a child. And it's like, well, all right, do we shift the show building? So we basically build it in that spot backstage behind uh, Main Street USA in Tomorrowland. It's like, well, no, that's where we used to stage the parades to go up, you know, through the park every day, you know, to try again. And... And while they're doing this, of course, Euro Disneyland opens and starts to get in financial trouble. And so here's Michael Eisner. Hey, guys, I love this, but you have no money. We're cutting the budget for Tomorrowland because what just happened in Paris terrifies us. And so I still want you to do something with the alien's character, but find a different way to go. And so they're like, all right, so what if we don't build a show building? What if we put it in a a pre-existing attraction and that's when they came up with the idea of dropping the alien in the middle of the mission to mars theaters the two of them uh that they have okay they start play testing that version and this is when you know they figure all right so we're not traveling through a building but let's make it so the monster is traveling around the building Ooh, this is i mean this is a risky uh script change yeah yeah and it especially when they began play testing it <laughs> They got to a moment, or again, they had decided, okay, we're going to strap people into a chair. We're going to use 3D sound to make them think it's coming up behind them. In fact, remember, the alien has sort of that extendo mouth thing that comes out, and they were going to create an effect that brushed your hair, and they were going to have it drool on folks. And what happened during the playtest is people would freak out because they'd scream at, oh, my God, get me out of this chair. It's going to burn. It's acid. And it's like... Well, no, you're remembering the alien films wrong. The drool was an acidic. The blood of the creature was acidic. But it's like, look. I, <laughs> I think the finer points of alien physiology, Jim, well, probably lost on most, well, no, most that, guests. That was it, it exactly. <laughs> that was one of these things where it's like, do we explain that in the pre-show? How does it come up as a narrative? Oh, oh by the way, the drool is fine. You know, but... Yeah, <laughs> So uh, that's ultimately why, after securing the rights and all of this development work, when Alien Encounter finally opened it, uh, 
you know, in fact, at, at this point, the Disneyland one is just totally off the table, but it, it shows up in Orlando, it, it, part of the Magic Kingdom's The Future That Never Was. But when they open it there in December of 94, they only keep it open till January and then shut it down for six months because it was one of these situations where the audience walked out the door and was confused as to, well, how did the creature get around the room? How was it behind me? I thought it was in the tube in the middle. And they had to create this all of these additional videos, you know, to explain it has wings, it flies, it did this, you know, all that. Yeah. Meanwhile, pivoting back to Disneyland, and here's a Michael Eisner who's simultaneously saying, I'm sorry, you have no money for your new Tomorrowland, but I have these ideas I'd like you to implement. And when we were talking at the top of the show about the changes that are coming to Epcot's Future World section with mm-hmm. all of the greenery and that sort of thing, because this was what Eisner had become obsessed with. He thought, you know, when we're talking about the future, we really should be talking about Montana. <laughs> what? <laughs> Evidently, he had gone up to Halley, Idaho, and visited with Bruce Willis. I think this was when they were trying to sort of lock Bruce in to do Armageddon for Disney. And Bruce had taken all of his money and and bought a good portion of Hadley, Ohio. He built, you know, a wonderful ranch house and, you know, redid the downtown and all that. Hadley, Ohio? Hadley. Hadley. uh, Hadley, Idaho. Excuse me. Hadley. uh, Idaho. Idaho. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. And he takes Eisner to his wonderful ranch house that has the latest in fiber optics and high-speed modem. And so it's it's a notion of I'm out on the countryside and I'm having... Small time living, but I, I can chat with anybody on the planet because of the, the satellite, you know, that's on the roof. And they have a, an orchard right out in the yard where I can go pick fruit. And he, he just came back and said, this is the future I think people really want. They they want a small town feel. But to be connected to everything else. There we go. And so he really got obsessed with the whole, you know, the future is edible. I mean, you know, the notion of walk outside, take a you know, apple right off the tree, pick a, you know, and... You know, and the Imagineers are like, did you miss the part of Disneyland history where we pulled down the walnut trees and we tore out the orange grove to build a castle? Yeah, they tried. I mean, Disneyland's tried edible things before, right? Because there was a there was a thing, was it the 50s or the 60s, where it was like, your lawn is going to be completely edible, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. When New Tomorrowland opened in May of 1998, I mean, first of all, the Disney lawyers were just not happy with this idea at all. It's just the whole notion of, okay, let me th- get this straight. You're going to have miniature kumquats, you know, in planters that guests can reach. Okay, small child reaches for a kumquat, doesn't, takes too big a bite, lodges in the throat, chokes. We're liable. Yeah. You can't do this. And it's just, but uh, sure. Somebody sneezes on the kumquat before the kid eats it. The parents freak out. What do you, I mean, what do you do? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's nutty. But- Seriously, when you came through then, when this side of the park first opened up, it was, I swear to God, Len, it was described this way, decorative kale. (laughs) Decorative kale. (laughs) Headlines you will never read in Better Homes and Gardens. Decorative kale. To bring this full circle, think about it. Leave a legacy in front of the park. In fact, these two projects, the monoliths that were in front of Leave a Legacy that framed Spaceship Earth, Just a year earlier, we had a similar set of crystals installed at the entrance of Tomorrowland to frame the Astro Orbiter. And Mm. in both cases, 
it's lovely to look at from a distance. It's a beautiful model. But when you mm -hmm. go to try to move tens of thousands of people through that exact space, it's like, oh. oh. Just to sort of bring this right up to date, what they've done with, for example, stroller parking in Adventureland, it's all to clear mm -hmm. the arteries going in that direction. I remember as part of the press event for Project Stardust, people were asking, well, what about the answers to Tomorrowland? And it's like, well, we're still kind of thinking about that. I mean, we evidently removing the crystals, much like removing the Leave a Legacy thing, it's on the table. But mm -hmm. honestly, part of the reason they're holding off, do we want to talk about that trademark uh, that you found? Yeah, if you want to. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, like I always do, I was looking at different patents and trademarks that Disney has filed recently. And one that I came across that I was really interesting was filed on February 13th, 2019 by a company called Vienna Capital Inc. in Anaheim. And the trademark was for the phrase, the Disney Hotel. So I immediately uh, emailed Jim and I said, I thought this project was dead. Why did they just file? Uh, why did somebody just file a trademark for the Disney Hotel you know, a couple of weeks ago? when we heard months ago that uh, this thing wasn't going to happen. So I take what the information that Len gives me and I drill down into the company, which is mostly Eastern European. They do a lot of petrochemical work. They do a lot of stuff in the world of pharma, but they also have a real estate investment bank side. And further research showed that they are really eager to enter the American marketplace. Disneyland just this past fall shut down the Ford Diamond Hotel project that was supposed to be built in the middle of, well, not the middle, the, the, the area in downtown Disney between the Disneyland Hotel and just past where the old AMC Theater, Rainforest Cafe, and ESPN Zone was located. <laughs> the reason we're bringing this up in regard to Tomorrowland is if this project is now back on because foreign investors have agreed to step up, what people have to remember is that this hotel was positioned where it was because they wanted to have a monorail stop. And okay. the, the monorail stop for the hotel is basically where people, where guests now get on at downtown Disney, that out, outdoor giant leaf-shaped station. So while they're building this hotel, the monorail would have to shut down for a significant amount of time. And the interesting thing is something that Disney has been toying with for years, they now plan to go ahead with, that they will take advantage of the monorail being shut down for eight months to a year to simplify the route of the monorail within the park. When you get on the monorail, it's a lovely ride from like 1961, 62, you know, you mm -hmm. sort of a spaghetti like layout. And it really doesn't work in 2019, 2020, because we now no longer think of a monorail as a wonder of the future. It's like, look, it's a transportation system and I got to meet somebody at Red Rockets for lunch, you know, so. Yeah, I need, I need to know exactly how long this is going to take and it can't take a moment, uh, a moment longer, yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, so yeah. when you simplify that route, Right. You open this giant piece of real estate. We've already seen just in the past year or so that Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris and Tokyo Disney Seas have revealed that they are building uh, frozen themed lands with an Arendelle Castle. And 
you know, supposedly that project is eventually headed to Disneyland. You think Disneyland will get a frozen land, an entire land, or DCA? Circling back to the Project Stardust thing. One of the reasons that they, they haven't decided yet whether or not they're pulling down those crystalline structures that frame the Astro Orbiter uh, mm-hmm. is, are we really going to get serious about this? Are we finally going to wade in and fix Tomorrowland in the way it needs to be fixed? Because it's always had a poor layout on nights when they're running the parades. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to get into. It's impossible to get out of. And especially with the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge this summer, with another ten to 20,000 people in the park, Disneyland needs additional capacity. This is why we've seen Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway uh, fast track for this park. This is why a frozen land, not a ride, not a, you know, a, positioned in such a way that the Matterhorn then becomes the mountain that Elsa runs up on. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but this frozen land would also, in that same window of time, this would be when Disneyland would redo Tomorrowland. We have to create enough ride-shows and attractions with capacity for the people who can't get into Galaxy's Edge. It's a backstop. Yeah, this is why when the Fox acquisition deal is completed, we're going to see Disney once again wade into all of that IP. And it's like, okay, so what can we use here besides the alien thing? Because we know that one doesn't work. You know, <laughs> something, something warmer and fuzzier. Yes, it'll be interesting to see what they, uh, what they pick there. I'd, be, uh, I'd still be really surprised if they added an actual frozen land yeah. in Disneyland, only because there is no separate themed land. I think you're the one who tripped over the real big piece of the puzzle here that the fact that they've trademarked this i just i wonder when we're finally going to actually get an announcement that that project is back on i'm assuming that the for the next couple of uh, months anyway all they want is uh, galaxy's edge news so that's probably what we'll see okay all right folks that's going to do it for our show today if you're a Bandcamp subscriber look out for two new Bandcamp exclusive shows coming your way in march and if you're not a subscriber a small monthly donation at disneydish.bandcamp.com gets you access to a bunch of shows not available on iTunes. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who wants us to remind you that if the elevator tries to break you down, go crazy. Don't forget to go, <laughs> don't forget to go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.